I went through that sort of experience until I was a freshman in high school. And when he died, I guess my mind just decided it was safe to start remembering. You're listening to Scars We Share. I'm your host, Kayleen. I apologize for being a day late. I was not feeling well and needed to take it easy. This episode is just mm, so needed, so helpful. Denise is a lovely woman who has been through a lot. She was sexually abused as a child, and she talks about some of her journey to healing and getting to where she is now. We talk a lot about healing the parts of us that need it. Here's Denise. Thanks so much. So I'm Denise Bossert, and during my regular job, I'm an IT professional working for a large school district, but outside of that, I'm an artist. So I'm an award-winning poet, writer, photographer, and artist, and I really like to put all of the energy that I have creatively into those endeavors and write things that people would like to read and might be helpful to them and just explore all kinds of art because I just think continuously learning and continuous expression is really important. Yeah, I love that. So what kind of stuff do you do? Like, what kind of stuff do you photograph? I love photographing nature. Uh, It's really healing to be out in nature and I really enjoy going out and exploring things up close and macro or landscape size. And I actually am certified to teach a contemplative photography practice, which I do myself and then I share with other people. So I enjoy doing that as well. That's so cool. My husband's a photographer. He's really honed in on headshot photography, Mm -hmm. but there's just something about being able to just go out and take pictures outside. Mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. do scenic type photography it is very relaxing and yes. it can be very meditative you know very yeah. calming for people that mm-hmm. have a lot of stress in their lives or maybe they're have experienced some trauma it's it's a fantastic way to just get si- outside your own head and kind yes. of be <laughs> and yes. be in all this beauty that's out there in the in the natural world absolutely oh that's so cool and just art in general like I just think that that's so cool I am not artistic. <laughs> yes, but you're when a writer. Goes, you're yeah, a writer. Like, you're a literary artist, not a yes, visual artist. Exactly. <laughs> I, that is the thing is like, I am not a visual artist, like at all. I'm like, my seven-year-old is better at drawing than I am. <laughs> like, yeah. I do not have that kind of artistic ability, but my husband does. Like everything that you've been saying, I'm like, oh my gosh, like the same, like. <laughs> you like, totally get into that, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I totally understand all of this. Like, he's like, he loves all those things. And it always just kind of blows me away when I see people, like, when I actually see people doing art, mm-hmm. when I actually get to watch people do it, and then, you know, see the end result, I'm always just like, wow, like, I love watching people. What always gets me is like, having the ability to do like, shading, and just I don't know like there's just so many things in it I'm like I just I don't have an eye like I wouldn't understand where to put things where to shade where to like I just I don't understand all of that my eye doesn't catch it so when I see it just kind of yeah, and I'm not, a, I'm not a person who draws either. I mean, I, I had a good friend in elementary school who could draw everything realistic. And I was like, uh, stick figures versus what Jason's doing? No. But <laughs> when I got a camera, I finally discovered that I could be artistic and capture what I was seeing directly yeah. through the camera. And 
now we've got cell phones that are so sophisticated. You just don't have to lug around a lot of equipment. You can just grab your cell phone. But for yeah. me, that was my expression is, is capturing what I was seeing and being able to share that with other people. And then I'm an abstract artist. So I do poor painting oh. and gelatin prints and things like that. So, That's so cool. I, I am envious of those people who can translate what they see into something realistic because I've never been successful, but I found other things that I enjoy doing collage mm -hmm. art and that sort of thing. There's, so don't, put yourself in a tiny little box just because you can't draw. There's a lot of art you can do. Yes. <laughs> That's so cool. I was a floral designer for years, oh. um, but I had to go a different way ultimately, but I loved doing that. And so like mm -hmm. I could create beautiful artistic floral pieces. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I somehow could visualize that, mm -hmm. but yeah, drawing so no. make the box really big. That kind yeah. of art, baking creative, beautiful dishes or breads yes. or, you know, there's so many things that people will not recognize as being artistic, as being creative. And I want to honor that the, all of those things are. Yeah. We're kind of taught as little kids that drawing is sort of artistic. Well, yeah, it is. But so is, is being creative and making stuff, you know, either it's woodwork or in the, yeah. the kitchen or crafting. To me, all of that is artistic and creative. And we yeah. so much need to nurture those things for ourselves and we're all creative you know maybe you can't mm -hmm. take on the the title of artist but we're all creative and we can express that in so many ways mm -hmm. even when you're playing with your kids and showing them how to learn and do stuff that takes creativity you know to, yeah. to come up with that so I think that we can honor that creativity in ourselves and recognize when we're being creative and don't have to worry about labels just enjoy the process yes I really love that you brought that up I think every single person has to have a creative outlet mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's going to look different for everyone. Like you just said, like there are so many different ways to be creative and to have that outlet. But I think it is necessary for everyone mm -hmm. to be able to do that. It's healing. It's helpful. Like it just gives you something to put you into. It's part of our human nature, I think. And yeah. if we disconnect from that, as we so often are in our modern world where we're we're passively um, digesting things that are sent to us through yeah. social media rather than going out there and engaging. And I'm a lifetime learner. I love to learn things about science and I love to learn about art. And I'll say, I have no idea if I can do that, but I'm going to take that pottery class. I'm going to take this art class. I'm going to try this. And so many things that I said, well, let me try. I've loved and just learned to play with it. And so I don't ever want to decide ahead of time that I'm not going to enjoy it and yeah. just go and explore. And if I'm not any good, I'm like, well, okay, I tried it. It didn't work out. Like, and So what's the next thing I could maybe try? And, yeah. and that's what people need to do is be open to exploration, creativity, lifeline learning so that you don't eliminate an opportunity to have this wonderful way of experiencing the world, being creative and expressing yourself. And so that's what I encourage people to do is just be open to whatever you want to want to explore in your world yeah oh I love that so much this is so funny like I, this is seriously so bizarre you are like so similar to my husband <laughs> like, <laughs> this is so bizarre like that is it's him to the t like this mm -hmm. lifelong learning thing he's like oh I want to learn about that and so he does and like and so he does all of these interesting things and I think it's really cool and some things he's better at than other things like yeah. he, he learned book binding. And mm -hmm. so he made a journal for me, like mm -hmm. completely from hand, like made and bound a journal for me. That is beautiful. And, but like, I think that there's so much 
there's so much in that and just being able to be like, Hey, I want to learn something and it doesn't matter if I'm good at it. Like mm-hmm. I'm just going to learn it and see what happens. We're so I focused think... on the end product, right? Yeah. And the end product and other people's view and judgment. And for me, especially coming from this contemplative arts um, perspective on things, you know, photography, flower arranging, there's a lot of different contemplative art practices. And the, the idea is the process, the process and the practice, yeah. not the end goal. If you're exactly. in the moment being creative and being open, inevitably something beautiful comes out of it, but you're not worried about what the judgment's going to be. You're just exactly. having the moment, having the experience. And that's yeah. how I like to practice art, practice photography, because then it's fun. You know, you release yeah. all that extra burden yes. of, you know, it's got to be good. It's got to be perfect. People got to like it you know and even yeah. if we're in the moment a lot of people are like well I'm going to put it on, on social media so I want it to look a certain way and I just I eventually I post stuff on social media because it's fun to share but when I'm in the moment doing my art it, it's not about that it's about how much yeah. fun can I have and oh I'm playing with colors I'm just having a good time and being a kid yeah. we forget how to be kids when we're adults and yes. having that ability just to be play you know kids play without worrying about how how is my play going to be interpreted? How is yeah. my play going to be accepted? How is what I do going to be looking out in the world and comparing to other people? None of that matters. They just yeah. do it, you know? Yeah. So being childlike, oh. got to be childlike your whole life. Yes. Oh my gosh. Amen. I love it. I love it <laughs> yeah. so much. My, oh, oh man, I know we need to move on, but I want to just mention this. So we're in a class, we're in a Hannon class mm-hmm. for my youngest son, who's two uh, he's delayed speech wise. And so they like, we've been trying to get lots of extra help to know how to kind of help him communicate and whatnot. And this hand in class that we're taking is all around play. Mm-hmm. It seriously is almost completely around using play to help them communicate mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's what kids need. Like kids learn through play. Yep. And I feel like, and that's what helps them learn like they learn so much through that they learn more communication they learn so many different skills through playing mm-hmm. and I think that that totally translates into these creative outlets we learn through play we continue to learn through playing playing looks a little bit different as an adult mm-hmm. versus when you're a child but I think that it totally is the same we learn about ourselves. We learn about the world around us. We like, there is so much learning that still goes on through play, through those creative outlets, through learning something like, I don't know. I just think that Yeah, that it's the is... whole field of psychology now about play and, and yeah. how important play is not for just kids, like you said, but for adults, it's, it's where we really need that in some form and to keep us healthy and balanced. And it's just really interesting. Something that we used to say, well, that kind of ends at a certain time mm-hmm. in your life. Now they're saying, no, 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 it's t- too important to, to our mental health to let that go and finding new ways to broaden the definition of what play is and what that includes. But I love what you're saying that it's not just something we're doing, but how it's engaging us in the world and, and there's communication, we're learning about ourselves and other people. So it's much more rich than the word that we have sort of labeled to be basically what kids do. This is a richness beyond that, that we're just starting to really understand. Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. This is so good, but (laughs) let's move to a physical scar that you have. Sure. I have kind of a funny story. I had my appendix out. So I have a two inch scar on my abdomen on the right side, the typical location of your appendix. So 
That's happened when I was in sixth grade, and we lived in Missouri, and we were about a mile and a quarter outside of town, and we lived on a hill. So whenever the weather was bad, especially icy, which happens in Missouri a lot, my dad would drive down to the bottom of the hill to get up enough momentum to get up over the hill and into town to work. So we had a really bad storm, a, a winter storm, one of the worst we'd ever had there. And so he needed to get out of the driveway. And so, come on, kids, help me, you know, get the snow off the driveway. So we did that. And then I started not feeling well. And my side started hurting and I wasn't feeling good. And I started telling my dad about this. And and I didn't know anything about body parts and what, what that was, right? Yeah. So, but he was a ear, nose, and throat doctor. So he was pretty aware of what yeah. that might be and concerned. So I don't know where my sister was. Maybe she had already gone into school. But um, so I, dad climbed in the front seat and mom and I were in the back. I was laying down and I was starting to kind of live it up a little bit because I was getting all of this attention, <laughs> right? Oh, it really hurts, you know, not realizing what was coming. And we get to the hospital and they're checking me out. And by that time, I guess I had a fever and, you know, I was tender on my side and they had asked me, the other symptom was, you know, this is 40 years ago, right? So they, they can only check in so many ways. And they said, well, has she been vomiting? And at that point, no. But a little bit later, I was really feeling sick to my stomach and I wanted my mom to give me something because I knew I was going to throw up. And I was like, mom. And instead of saying, mom, it was projectile vomiting into her purse. Oh. <laughs> so here's this whole experience happening. Long story short, they take out my appendix. I missed Valentine's Day because it was right before Valentine's Day. And the teacher sent home a whole bunch of Valentines for me. And it seemed like, you know, story's done. Okay. So years and years later, just a couple years ago, actually, I fessed up to my parents. Says, oh, you remember when I had my appendix out? I told them I was really, you know, living it up and, you know, making more of it. And they just started laughing like, what? And my dad said, well, we've got a secret we never told you. Once they did the analysis, the pathology on your appendix, they didn't need to take it out. <laughs> so here I was at the secret that I was living it up and they had the secret. It shouldn't have come out. And we finally shared and got a good laugh out of it. So that's my scar story is uh, not only back then what happened and kind of the funny things, but the secret, two secrets were revealed later and it was hysterical. Oh my gosh. So it didn't need to come out. No. And, and I had helped the process along by, you know, moaning and groaning and all of that. I don't know what it was I had if I had the flu and I was just being sick with a fever or something. Yeah. But again, back then, 40 years ago, they didn't want you to have a burst appendix. So it was better, safer than sorry to pull it mm -hmm. out. But turns out I could have kept it. Yeah. So. Oh man, that's so interesting. Um, <laughs> my husband had his appendix out two years ago, just over two years ago. And it was definitely an easy, like easier process. Mm -hmm. Like he was feeling sick, was having stuff like problems overnight. And so he like in the morning, he's like, I really like something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I called the doctor and I just set an appointment for our primary care, mm -hmm. like for actually a, a nurse at our primary care physician's office. She's like, well, there's enough here to have a suspicion of appendicitis. So we're mm. going to send you for a CT scan. So then he had a CT scan done of his abdomen and they called us shortly after. They're like, you should go to the ER. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but, it, but there's a lot 
there is a lot mm-hmm. more now mm-hmm. to confirm a diagnosis and he has very, very little scars. He just has yeah. three very little scars because mm-hmm. they could do it laparoscopically now. Right, right. But yeah, it's just, it's interesting the advances that happen in 40 years medically. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. But that is interesting that you didn't actually have to have it out. <laughs> you can tell them <laughs> back in the day, you might have had this happen. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, goodness. What we do as kids, right? What we do. So let's move to the internal scar. What internal scar are you willing to talk about? Sure. So I'd like to share my story of childhood abuse. So I was sexually abused by my grandfather, my mother's father. And this happened when I was a a young child. I don't know when it started, but it ended when I was a freshman in high school and he died of cancer. So came to an abrupt end. But I don't really remember a lot about what happened. I have memories that are very vivid and distinct, but not a lot of memories. And as a trauma survivor, I can't really place some of those memories in a timeline of my life overall. So when people say, well, when did it start? Like, well, it's kind of hard to determine that. I just know by my relative size to adults, I was a young kid. And it was really a splitting of my personality in a way. I was really kind of outgoing, loving, kind of kid, really curious. And then my personality shifted when it started. And I just totally withdrew, became a total introvert. And it really shaped how I saw the world. I mean, here was this person I was supposed to love me and care for me. Grandparents are supposed to be those people you run up to, hugs and kisses and love. And instead, here was this person I was terrified of. I I was afraid to be alone with him, even in a family gathering. I didn't want to sit next to him. And I wasn't necessarily consciously remembering the abuse, but I intuited that he was someone who was dangerous to me. And I would have these recurring nightmares at night that there was a monster trying to get me. And so my mind, I think, was trying to protect me and not let me really be aware of memories of the abuse while it was happening. But there was sort of this letting out of steam by having these nightmares. And so I went through that sort of experience until I was a freshman in high school. And when he died, I guess my mind just decided it was safe to start remembering. And so here came the flashbacks, here came the memory, here came what I call body memories of being touched and things. And it was just overwhelming. I'm a 15 year old kid and you know, I have no resources for this. Too ashamed, too totally ashamed to tell anybody what had happened. So my solution, my therapy, my self therapy was to just throw myself into school. I'd always been good at school, always got good grades, always was getting a lot of positive feedback, really enjoyed learning. So that's what I did into all the honors classes, band, basketball. I just kept so busy that I didn't have to think about it and just push everything down. And then when I finally got to college, I started dating a a graduate student and he was a recovering alcoholic going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And he was the first person to really say, I think we need to get you someone to talk to, get you some help. And so through the school counseling center. I got a therapist and she got me into a women's group of other assault survivors, which was amazing to actually talk to other people who had gone through what I had gone through and were at different stages of their healing process. And I also started going to survivors of incest anonymous, which is similar to the alcoholics anonymous. And for the first time met men who had gone through similar situation and been abused by their mothers. In fact, there was a gentleman there at the age of my grandfather when he was abusing me. So it was like, 
just world shattering to think, oh my gosh, there men of that age aren't all predators. <laughs> you know, yeah. some of them are victims. Um, and so that kind of started my healing journey for me. And then over time, I slowly found different ways to enhance that. I didn't have a blueprint. I didn't have a guide of any kind at that time to tell me what to try. So I just kind of was trying different things and not with the real intention. If I do X, I'll get healed. It was like, I need to try something different. And yeah. yoga is supposed to be really good for you. So I, I tried that and meditation and slowly started building up you know, a toolkit of experiences and practices that I could use to continue my healing journey and healing different parts of me, yoga for the body, meditation more for the mind, the creative arts and being out in nature, you know, all of those things I put together. And when I first started doing yoga, I started writing poetry. I'd, I'd written poetry as a kid. I was very creative, always writing, yeah. but, uh, Back then, of course, it was just fun stuff. Thanksgiving holiday, I'm writing about the mighty hunters have set yeah. out, you know, these little cute little <laughs> yeah. kid poems, right? Nothing about the abuse because I wasn't remembering it. But when I started doing yoga and it really, doing yoga connects you to your body yeah. and you start opening up things that have been trapped in your body all these years. And so I just started writing poetry to express it and about the emotions and the fear and everything that happened as a kid and my transition and my healing journey. And at the time, I, my husband said, why don't you share this? This would really help people. And I was like, who's going to read a bunch of poems about abuse? I don't, you know, yeah. and I, how the heck would I get it published? You know, back then there wasn't self-publishing in, in Amazon and all of that. And I also was confused on how I would bring that together. Because again, as a person that has a trauma brain, I don't have that memoir just that I could lay out and write a yeah. story. It wasn't available to me. So I convinced myself I didn't have anything that, that I could really share. And then a few years ago, when Dr. Larry Nassar's story broke about how he was abusing so many young girls and women, hundreds of people, this one man destroyed their lives for them, something inside me just cracked open. And I thought, you know, I don't have a memoir, but I do have all these things I tried that helped me in my healing. So maybe I could put that together in a book, share my story that I have, but share all of these things people could do for healing. And so I decided that I would write this self-help book. And I spent the last few years working on it, and I self-published it last month. That is so cool. So cool. I'm like, not the abuse stuff. Mm. I'm just like, but I, I really do love that though. You're not the first person I've talked to who has gone through abuse. And this is, the, this is a very normal thing where you just, you don't have a full memory of everything mm -hmm. because our brains are these interesting things that like to block things out. And so I totally understand, like, I get what you're meaning that way is like, you don't have all of these perfect memories of everything that happened, but you remember the feelings mm -hmm. and all of the stuff surrounding it. And there is so much to offer outside out with that. Like mm -hmm. there are so many people who have experienced those things. So being able to write all of that out, I think is so not just helpful and healing for you, but it's mm -hmm. so helpful and healing for other people to know, Hey, someone else gets it. Yeah. Someone yeah. else understands. And that's what I really wanted was to share my story. And it's my story from 
when the abuse started through all of the phases I was kind of talking about through high yeah. school and college and on past that because I wanted people to see the healing journey that I experienced. And I've structured the book in, in several parts. So the first part is just my, my story, the history, so you understand fully kind of what was going on. And in the next section, chapter by chapter, are all the things that I tried, the individual therapy, the group therapy, yoga, meditation. So each chapter, you get a bit of my story. And then I ask a bunch of questions. I ask the reader, grab a journal, let's sit down together, and I'll guide you through these questions so you can figure out how you might engage in this practice. Where do you go? How do you find things? What questions should you ask when you're trying to do this kind of work? Yeah. And journal about it because I don't have a program for you. I don't have a 30 day program that if you do this, you'll be healed. You know, it's, yeah. it's everybody's abuse is individualized. Everybody's healing journey is individualized. The only thing I, I strongly encourage is that people get an individual therapist, particularly one that specializes in trauma or abuse. But beyond that, I just throw out, these are some of the things I tried. What can you connect with? Uh, you want to connect with yoga, qigong, body work. What kind of things can you try within the, these various spaces and experiences and explore that? Because I kind of want to be a little bit of a blueprint, a little bit of a workbook, but really sort of a mentor to help people figure out what's going to work best for them in their healing journey. And you may try one thing for a while and put the book aside and then come back and say, okay, I'm ready for the next thing. What am I going to do next? Let me explore something else. Yeah. And I want to support people in doing that as best I can. And then the next section is those poems that I wrote so many years ago, I edited and brought them together. So it's just another way for you to see my healing journey through poetry and have an example of how you might journal about your healing journey as well, how yeah. powerful that can be to put it on paper and to really write about it. And then at the end of the book, I give a lot of different resources of uh, sites to go to, apps you can use for meditation, all the different things to come together that you can just use that kind of as a reference point at the back of the book. And just wanted to make that available for people to help them. Um, it was hard to write the book, as you can imagine. To as, yeah. as you mentioned, it's another part of my healing journey. And I had a hard time. I wrote a, a fiction novel, an award-winning fiction book, uh, the dark urban fantasy book. And I would sit down and start the beginning of the book. You have a schedule every, you know, every Sunday you're going to write a chapter, blah, 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 knock yeah. it out, get it edited. And that worked. And when I try to apply that same approach, this really rigorous scheduled approach to writing this book, it blew up in my face. And I had writer's block. I, I couldn't get anywhere. And I suddenly realized that I just had to give myself permission to spend as much time as I needed and so it slowly came out a paragraph at a time, a few mm -hmm. um, pages at a time. And I actually had to start with the reader part where I'm, I'm asking them questions that they can work with. And then I could get to my story and I jump around. I didn't do it sequentially. I'd write yeah. different parts of the book. And the last piece I could put together was actually the very first chapter, which was the full telling of my story. It was that hard for me to sit down and actually write from beginning to end of what had happened. And eventually, after working through these other pieces, I could do that. But all the time I was writing, I kept thinking, you need to do this because this could help. This could really help yeah. people. I wanted to write the book that I wish I had had when I started my healing journey. And so I, I've got things in there that can help someone from the very beginning of their process and their healing. There's also things in there that someone who's been on a healing journey for a while might explore. And it's for men and women, 
all ages. And I, I really hope it gets in the hands of college-aged folks because they're in their transition away from some of those abusive situations mm-hmm. and are finally at a point they might be able to explore and start healing. And my wish would be that they could start healing early. I, you know, I was in my 30s and 40s. I'm like, let's get some of this healing started early for these folks so they can live their life and and be resilient and happy and and expressive and really being their true selves for so much longer. So that that's kind of my wish and my hope I put out to the universe that it'll find its way word of mouth and people sharing it, that it'll get to the, the people that really need it and could benefit from it. Yeah. I think that is so beautiful. So, so, so beautiful. There's just this whole healing I think I'm trying to figure out how to say this. <laughs> so I think everyone has something to heal from. Mm-hmm. I, I I think that that's like across the board. Everyone has something that they need to heal from. And abuse is one of the major ones that unfortunately a lot of people. Have yeah, the statistics through. are pretty yes, scary. They are. They are. They are very scary. And so having something for them to actually physically have to look through, to start working through, I think is really important and helpful. Yeah, I just think that's beautiful. And I love that you said you want to get it into the hands of like college age people. Because let's be honest, you're still a kid. When you go to college, like, yes, you're an adult, but you're still a kid when you're going yeah. to college. Your brain's like, still this, developing. Okay, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, like, but I'm like, you're still kind of a kid when you're in college. And just thinking about like, how much how much more could you do if you started that healing journey earlier on? Mm-hmm. It's not from abuse or anything like that, but I, um, within the past year, have left the religion that I was raised in. And there has been a lot of healing that has had to happen and still needs to happen from leaving that mm-hmm. religion. And I'm 32 now. I just turned 32 and I'm like, okay, now I'm getting into this whole process. Mm-hmm. Like I've got, I'm, I'm a fair amount in, but I've still got a whole lot more to do to get through all of this. And how much better would it have been if I had done that in my twenties? Right. Like, I think that I, I love that. That's really kind of what you're focusing in on is like, let's give younger people these tools Mm-hmm. let's get this into younger people's hands so that way they can make the absolute most with their life instead of having to 10, 15 years later, all of a sudden have it come up because sometimes that it just, it's suppressed for so long mm-hmm. that you don't start the healing process until it's staring you right in the face and you are forced to deal with it. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened to me too, was that I, I was just miserable. I was, I hated myself. I hated my body. You know, everything I learned from my grandfather was you're worthless. You're unlovable. You deserve what you're happening to you. You don't deserve good things. And as hard as I strive to overcome that, there was some voice in my head that was still telling me that. And I, and I still believed it. And it took a long time to be able to peel that voice away so I could be back to my true authentic voice and realize what I was capable of. And what I was capable of in a positive and negative way and start looking and do some introspection and say, you know, take a look at your life. What behaviors do you have? How is that impacting what you want from relationships or being in the world? So what do you need to change? 
what do you need to change? And so I started with affirmations and reading a lot of self-help books and trying to figure out what is it that I can do for myself that the work I need to do to move to the point where I'm going to be the person I want to be. And one of the big things for me was letting go of the past and its hold on me. So my, my book is called Thriving After Sexual Abuse, Break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love. And so that's what I was really trying to get across even in the title is that that past will continue to have its claws in you and hang on to you if you're ignoring it, if you're suppressing it, if you're just trying to pretend it didn't happen, that's festering and it's coming out. It's going to come out in ways that you may not even really recognize that that situation has impacted you in such a way that now you're having these behaviors that maybe don't make sense or are counterproductive. And until you acknowledge what happened and let that healing begin, you can't let go of the past and how it's keeping you sort of in bondage to the past. All my energy was in responding to fighting the past. And I at one point came up with this visual of this ball and chain connected to me, right? That that was my past. And it was just the suffering I felt about having to deal with this heavy weight. And one day it just, a light bulb went off and I'm like, break the chain. You just have to break the chain and there goes that ball and then the chain with it. And then you can move on in the future and all that energy you had fighting and dealing with the past, you can turn that energy to the future and the present and put it into yourself instead of, all that response and energy to him, to the perpetrator, I took that away. I said, no, that, that's not going to go to you. That's going to go to me and yeah. for me to heal. And so that that's the imagery I have on my book as well is this ball and chain with a broken chain. And there's a rose growing up through that chain. And to me, the, you know, it's a red rose, which means love, but the love is for me, for myself. Yeah that I've, I've learned to love myself, this beautiful rose that smells so wonderful. That's me now. That's how I can see myself. But also roses have thorns because I want to be sure to have good boundaries. <laughs> you know, yes. I'm not living in a fantasy world where everything's fine. Life is life. You know, human beings, we have to deal with all kinds of stuff, but I can build up my resilience and learn about myself and what triggers me and what really rocks me emotionally to be able to say, okay, I know those things are going to be things I need to be sensitive to. And I have to, you know, prepare myself for those. I have to build up my resilience. I need to do what I can so that I can live in the world in the way I want to. And things that used to come along and just knock me over for days, now they can come along and they just may be disruptive, but just for a shorter period of time. And I can look over time and see how that's developed and really appreciate my own growth. And journaling, you know, that's another great thing for journaling is you can go back and read. You're like, I haven't made any progress. And then you go back and read. You're like, oh, my gosh, look how far I've already come. You know, so healing isn't always moving forward one step after the other. Sometimes things come backwards. You feel it going backwards. And you got to be gentle with yourself, have a lot of self-compassion around what's happening and just realize you never really lose ground for what you've gone through. It's more like a spiral. You know, you come back to situations you have to deal with, but you're in a different place. You have different tools, different experiences to bring to bear. And so you can deal with things in a different way, in a healthier way. And so I consider healing sort of a lifelong journey um, that I keep the amount of energy I have to put into it is less, but I just see ways that I like to try to continue to support my myself and keep healing and be a lifelong learner along yeah. the way. Yeah. 
I love that so much because healing is not linear mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is, it, it goes in spirals and circles and squares and try Like healing is, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is like, you have to have so much compassion for yourself as you're going through it, because you're not just going to get from like point A to point B, say, I'm done, I'm healed. Mm-hmm. That's just unfortunately not how it works. Yeah. It's not it's, getting on the Autobahn and driving 200 miles an hour to destination. I'm healed. You know, it, yeah, it just doesn't like, work that way. No. <laughs> so like, but I think that looking at it that way, like this whole lifelong learning, like it's lifelong healing as well, mm-hmm. because it, you're continually changing. And through continually changing, that means that your experiences are going, like different experiences that you have are going to go back to different things that you've had prior. Like, Mm -hmm. and so new triggers may come up, new things may come up. And it's this lifelong learning process of, okay, how do I keep myself in a good space? If Mm -hmm. I start noticing that I'm spiraling downward, what tools do I have to help me stay in a in a positive place. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's a lifelong learning process in and of itself is just figuring out, okay, what do I need to do to stay good? Yeah. And, and I don't want to, to scare people to think, why should I even start if it's going to take my whole life? <laughs> you know, but the, the idea is that you start because you, you're most likely, as you said, it's in your face. You can't avoid it anymore. It's just too miserably painful yeah. to do in that kind of living anymore. And that may get you started. But there's sort of like, I kind of see it as, as growth in a plateau, growth in a plateau. Yeah. And you're going to see growth out of that pure misery into contentment or at least neutrality. And then you're going to have more growing into contentment and more growing into joy. So there's yeah. phases along the way that you're going to ex- you're not going to be feeling miserable for years. You're going to be yeah. feeling miserable for a certain amount of time, whatever is the time for you. And then things shift and they continue the shift upwards in a more positive way, but yeah. it doesn't always happen all at one time. And, yeah. and you just have to be forewarned and aware of it. But at the same time, it's worth starting because you can shift out of that pure misery to something even if it's neutral, is in a better place. (laughs) And then you start um, getting more joy in your life because I denied myself joy. I didn't think I deserved it. And if it came along, I immediately said, okay, thanks. And I went preparing myself for the next bad thing, the next bad experience. And so much that we've learned now about how to build resilience and how to work with your mind and how the brain actually functions is that you need to really slow down and stop and absorb those good experiences, appreciate them, you know, marinate yourself in them because you're telling your brain, this is important, build those little neural connections to help me remember this experience. And if we keep working on that appreciation, that gratitude, that experience of the positive, no matter how small I'm outside, it's sunny and the wind's blowing. Let me stop and really appreciate that because that's a great thing. And you slowly build up these experiences that are small, powerful, positive things. And you're training your mind to focus on those. And it's, that's what I think a lot of the healing things that my book offers is a way of saying, here's how you're going to rewire your brain to help you underneath all these things that you're going to try is an understanding of how your brain works and trying new things, doing new things, shifting your perspective, gets you out of those old pathways in your head and trains your brain to be your ally to help you move forward and continue the process of healing. Yeah, I, I really love that. And honestly, like, 
the hardest part is just getting started. Mm -hmm. Like that's really the hardest part. And I think that's where like, because it is a lifelong thing, but I think that it gets easier Mm -hmm. because once you, once you get over that first really big hurdle of Mm -hmm. starting the healing process, then as things come up, it's easier to get through. Yeah, I think and it, I don't. It's... I don't necessarily want to say easier, but like you, you're more able to manage it. Yeah, yeah. Your your skill set, your resilience, your experience all comes together. And I think a lot of people, it's hard to take that first step yeah. to look for help because you're afraid of rejection. Yeah. There's so much fear. There's so much shame that you're carrying that you're afraid to even crack into that or or speak it out loud. Now, I never jumped into the Me Too movement because it didn't feel right for me at the time to do that. And I think everyone should do things that they're comfortable with. Don't don't do what other people are telling you or what other people think you should do. Find out what you know is best for you. Am Mm -hmm. I comfortable jumping on social media and Me Tooing? Go for it. If you're comfortable with telling friends and family, great. If you're comfortable writing in a journal and not saying anything to anybody, that's find. Don't set yourself up to expectations of what other people expect. Do what's good for you. But again, I really think having a therapist and we've got telehealth, you Mm -hmm. can find uh, different therapists across the U.S. that have the skill set that help you particularly with with your particular experiences, trauma or abuse or whatever it is. And that first step to talk to this person who's neutral, who has been trained, who can help you start whatever you need to do for your particular situation. And just, you know, for me, the the first step was picking up the phone and calling my insurance company. It's like, how do I find a therapist because I've been abused? And just this anonymous person, you know, at the insurance company, just saying that was like the first time outside my family and close friends that I ever talked to a stranger to say, I was abused and I need help. It was terrifying to do yeah. that. Somebody's going to hear it. Someone's going to find out, you know, and, but I did it because I, I just, I wanted to change my life. I knew looking out and seeing other people and how they lived their lives. It's like, those people have great lives and they're happy. How can I do that? How can I find that? And so it was terrifying to take that first step, but I'm so glad I did because then yeah. the momentum picked up and I just was able to find the help I needed. It, it's, when you start putting that out in the universe that you want to move forward, things start showing up for yeah. you to support you. Yes. I absolutely know that that is true. Like if you put things out there, they come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, when you're ready and you're really, yeah. really ready for it, that's when things start showing up. And and I saw yeah. that over and over again, that opportunities would show up. I'm like, okay, let me go in that direction. And then it's, it's wow, you know, some, somewhere inside there's this intuition that's really yeah. helping you along the way and learning to trust that and learning to see yourself as a, a strong, capable person. People are afraid. I don't know if I could handle it. I, you know, it was so overwhelming to go through the abuse. How can I go through this again and get healing from it? But let me just say to everyone, look how strong you were. You're so strong to get through it. You have that strength to heal from it as well. And just remember that, that you deserve this. All that wasn't your fault. Whatever they told you, they were lying to you. Don't believe anything that you heard about who you are and what you're capable of because you're strong and you're a person of passion that can get out there and really do what you need to do for yourself. So just listen to your own inner voice saying that you can do it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we're about out of time. And I think that something you said really is like 
perfect to end on. <laughs> so the, there's always a start to the healing. Mm-hmm. There's always somewhere where, where you have to start. And I think one of the things, cause it is hard. Like that's, that's the hardest part is just starting. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, making that phone call was one of the hardest things because it was for the first time you're saying it to someone else. I need help because I've been abused. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that can help that you, that everyone needs to realize before they can even move forward is you deserve to be happy. Mm -hmm. You absolutely deserve to be happy. It doesn't matter what's happened. It doesn't matter what has been done or said to you. You do deserve joy. You do deserve to have a fulfilling, happy life. And you deserve to be healed so that you can have that. Well said. <laughs> I think that that's Beautiful. where I think that's where it all comes from is mm-hmm. realizing that you deserve to have that too. Mm-hmm. And you can have that. It's going to take work, but you can absolutely have it and thrive instead mm-hmm. of just survive. Absolutely. Here, here. <laughs> I totally agree with that. Thank you. You said that so well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, I want you to say again before we close, like where can people find, like say titles of your stuff, like where they can find it, all that stuff. Great. So my book is called Thriving After Sexual Abuse, Break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love. And you can find that on all the major book distributors, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, Google Play. I have a website thrivingaftersexualabusebook.com. Learn more about me and my book. There's um, all the links there for all the different places you can buy the book. And there's also some links to what I call my healing library, which is a list of self-help books I found really powerful to reference. So thrivingaftersexualabusebook.com. I'm on social media. So I'm on Facebook, Thriving After Sexual Abuse. I'm on Twitter, Am Thriving After. And then you can find me on, on Instagram as well as, um, as me to heal. <laughs> cool. Denise, this was lovely. Thank you so much for being willing to come on and share your story and give people amazing resources that I think will be very helpful for people wherever they're at on their healing journey, honestly. Well, thank you so much for giving me the chance to share with you and have this great conversation and really hopefully inspire people to take that first step. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a preview from next week. Everyone has something to heal from. Everyone has something that needs help and attention. Some things are deeper and need more attention than others. But if you'll take that first step to healing, I promise you that life will get better. I had my first ever therapy session earlier this week. It was great. It gave me a lot to think about. There are areas of my life that definitely need healing. I'm a little bit nervous about tackling some of it, but I'm also really looking forward to healing those parts of me so that I can be more whole and fully me. Take the time to heal. You're worth it. You deserve it. You deserve joy and love. So take the time for you to do what you need to do. Check out the show notes at scarsweshare.com slash podcast slash episode 096. There's links on there to Empress Journal, and all of Denise's links are on there too. Love to you all.
till next week. Let's say I turned 33 after my first one was born. And then my second one was at 36. And then I lost one at 42 and then 45. And it's like, God, what are you thinking? Are you serious? (laughs) 